You're listening to the Kelly to the Core podcast. Let's peel the apple and get to the good stuff with your host, Kelly Willenberg. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us on Kelly to the Core. Today, we are going to talk to Denise Quint, who is the Research Compliance Analyst in the Office of Compliance and Privacy at the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington, Vermont. Denise and I have known each other for quite a few years, and I invited her to join us today because we um, uh, are going to talk about the Research Billing Compliance Summit that is taking place in Denver, Colorado, uh, August 8th to the 10th. Uh, I do this conference with Momentum Events, and I have done this conference for many, many years, and Denise is a person who always comes and always supports it. So I asked her to join us today to give her perspective on why the conference is important to her. So Denise, thank you for joining me. I'm so happy you're here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to see everybody in person in Denver. Oh, I know. Oh, gosh. Can you believe it's been almost three years since we've all actually been in the same place? And this is such a strong community. So tell everybody a little bit about you, um, where you come from, and uh, how your career has evolved over the years. Well, I have been at the University of Vermont Medical Center for 40 years as of September 1st, so I'll try to keep this long story brief. (laughs) Um, I've been working remotely for 13 years since I remarried and moved back to Maine from Vermont. Uh, I am from Maine originally. My parents uh, lived here. Um, My husband, Bruce, lived here. I knew him back in high school. Uh, My husband, Bruce, and I have three adult children together and one grandchildren grandson who is 10 years old, and we are Red Sox fans through and through. Um, I was hired in 1982 right out of the radiologic technology program at UVM, and I was a staff x-ray tech for a couple of months, and then I transitioned into interventional radiology, and after three years there, I transitioned to the cardiac cath lab, where I worked clinically for 22 years. During that, yeah, during that time, I became a cardiovascular specialist and cross-trained with the nurses. And that meant that I scrubbed in as a first assistant and acted as circulating nurse every day. And that was a very exciting time to be in cardiology with electrode physiology taking off and transcatheter therapeutic procedures were Mm -hmm. coming on the horizon. It was very exciting. So you started doing research then, I bet. Yes, my first exposure to research was with the first coronary stent trials. Around 1995, we had three stent trials all starting up at the same time. Every device company was trying to get their version of the coronary stent through to market as soon as possible. That was also the year that Medicare started covering investigational devices. And one of the three sponsors of those three coronary stent trials sent along a reimbursement guide. It was about a half an inch thick and it explained how the claims were supposed to look and that we needed our local Medicare contractors to approve our participation and get the billing systems ready. Who knew, right? Oh my Um, gosh. I was blown away. I was a senior tech and I was responsible for the charge master for for the whole cardiology department. And I had to study up fast. We did not have a compliance department back then. No one knew what to do. And it was certainly baptism by fire into the research world. Um, So then my work with the charge master and increasing exposure to claims working with this research and 
you know, all of cardiology business working on charge tickets and all of that stuff led me to become a certified professional coder in 2000. And around that same time, our compliance department was born. And again, isn't it a coincidence? That's the same year Medicare published the clinical trial policy, NCD 310.1. You go right right along with the schedule and history of how this um, whole billing compliance world came into be. Yes, yes. We, you and I, I think we're born into it kind of all at the same time in terms of billing. You know, everyone was scrambling, trying to understand what it meant and how to comply with these new rules. Mm -hmm. So my work with research billing in cardiology got the attention of a new chief compliance officer, Kaylisa Barrett, in 2004. I taught her the little bit of what I knew from cardiology. That was my only experience. And Kaylisa coached me to come work for her in the compliance office as a compliance analyst. So while doing general compliance work with all the different departments in the hospital, I got a lot of research questions sprinkled in. Mm -hmm. um, And I also was assigned a research uh, billing audit annually. Um, And I was also a liaison to the OIG and Medicare when they picked our hospital for any routine audits. And I really learned a lot through that process as well. So in 2000... Go ahead. So you really, you were really doing this in kind of a baptism by fire where you were handed, you know, stuff to do in research billing and you figured it out throughout your career. Yes. I had to teach myself. I had to do a billing grid. I had to figure out it was, I sort of attacked it like a logic problem. Mm-hmm. And I had that, you know, like a schedule of activities. I at least had that grid. And, you know, when I look back at my coverage analysis that I did back then, I think, oh my gosh, I didn't know anything. But we all just kind of learned with each other and um, taught each other basically what to do. Which um, is really <laughs> where this group comes from. It's a group that works together. It's a group that collaborates and communicates. And we've been training together for years, which is why this group is so important. And I know as part of your career, it has been important for you to attend this research billing compliance summit and conferences throughout the year that, that Brian Main and I have been involved in. Why has it been important to you given where you are and, and, you know, how much experience you do have? Um, well, through the years, like you said, um, I w- uh, as a general compliance analyst, I was assigned a research audit annually. I had to map it all out myself. And I started going to HCCA conferences to learn everything I could, especially when I saw you on the agenda. I made sure that I went. <laughs> um, and that was the little snippet of research billing education that I would get. Um, <clears throat> so those HCCA conferences are great, but the Research Billing Compliance Summit is the only conference that focuses on all the nuances and risks of the billing aspect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, the, I mean, you know, all the other conferences, um, you know, and, and including HCCA, MAGI, SOCRA, ACRP, they all have a, some, usually some component of billing. And I think what makes this conference unique is that, that we really try to focus on all aspects of the billing compliance world, including what you're talking about, the billing grid, the coverage analysis, the back-end claims, and then the coding review. And I think that's where your knowledge has been so invaluable to the community and you've become you know, a, a, an expert yourself in some of the coding areas. So tell everybody what your topic for um, is in August and what you plan to cover 
and how you're going to approach the, the workshop that you have in August. Well, I'm going back to my roots in research, basically, and I'm very excited to be co-presenting with Diva Millions, who's an expert on device trials through her work with Abbott as a sponsor. We met several years ago at this very conference and have kept in touch throughout the years. Um, our workshop is entitled The Kitchen Sink, Everything You Need to Know About Billing Devices. Even if an attendee doesn't currently have any device trials, it doesn't mean they won't have one cross their desk next week, next month, or sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. We'll cover, you know, I mean, everybody, oh, I don't have any device trials. I don't need to know. Well, when you need to know, you need to know fast because there's a lot of push to get those trials going quickly. And you have to make sure you have all those pieces in place. Well, and I so, think your point about people not thinking that they have device studies. I mean, we've even seen oncology programs, you know, as that are clients that call and say, okay, well, we've got this device study and we've never done a device, or we have a study that actually has a device that the, is part of the study and we're giving an investigational drug. So, you know, don't you think there's a lot of nuances now with even more advanced devices and more complex trials than it was back when you and I started, you know, 20, 25 years ago? Absolutely. Um, that's absolutely for sure. And I believe in my experience right now, I've got device coming, device trials coming out of my ears and it's not just cardiology. I think they are increasing in frequency and across more departments. So we plan to cover IDE trials, of course, because they're the most complicated and we spend a lot of time on that. 510Ks, non-significant risk devices, humanitarian use devices, and coverage with evidence development. And uh, that's a Medicare category of coverage. And sometimes an IDE trial can also be a coverage with evidence development. And mm -hmm. what does that mean? It, it gets very complicated. Oh, I agree. I agree. And I think people, especially new individuals that come into the billing compliance world, these device studies sometimes can be complex enough that you have questions, but if, if you're not sure and clear what you're doing at the onset, when you are evaluating the type of study that you have, you can get yourself in into a pretty um, sensitive area quickly because you really don't understand what the device, um, you know, different rules are because there are right. different rules for different types of devices. And I'm glad that you and Diva are going to cover those. Yes. So, how has your career in billing compliance been impacted by being a part of this billing compliance community? Well, in the 10 plus years that I've been attending the Research Billing Compliance Summit, I've met so many great people that I've kept in touch with from all around the country, California, Texas, Florida, Wisconsin, Chicago. And when a sticky situation develops, it's great to be able to reach out to colleagues in other academic medical centers and get their opinion on how they handled it or, they, or how they would handle it. Mm -hmm. um, the research billing community that you built, really you did through this conference, has really developed and shaped the career paths of many of us. Mm -hmm. When I was first introduced to research, there was no such thing as a coverage analyst. We all have learned through and with each other, and in the absence of any guidance from Medicare or really fuzzy guidance from Medicare, together we forge a common understanding of best practices and even sometimes influence Medicare processing and guidelines themselves. I've seen Medicare contractor, medical directors come and learn so much, and I know that they've given you that feedback, and that's really exciting. Right, and, yeah, and, and I think having them as part of the as part of the community has been invaluable over the years. And of course, 
you know, contractors, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, come and go. And, you know, there's always new um, physicians who come in as different jurisdictional contractors. But we've always had a a really positive um, experience with some of the contractors. And I know you know as well as I do, some of the contractors uh, who have come to the event have learned from us as much as we can learn from them. Exactly. And as part of my career, since you mentioned that, I'm preparing to retire from UVM at the end of October. Mm -hmm. I'm not leaving the world of work, just taking a short break, and then we'll see what doors are open for me. And most of those doors that open will be a result of being in this part of this wonderful community Mm -hmm. of research professionals. I truly believe that. It's a great, it's a great uh, group of individuals and it's, and it's an area that's pretty niche, niche and, and people Very much don't so. understand that, you know, if you, if you're, if you're a healthcare compliance professional and, and you understand research compliance, that's, that's huge. But if you can zero in on the rules around clinical trial billing, you've got a pretty um, specialized field that you are working in. Absolutely. I think you could even entitle the conference, the conference for unicorns in research billing, because we're all that's, unicorns. That's, we're very that's unique. Maybe that's, a, <laughs> maybe that's our next conference. So um, let's, let's um, end with um, what are you, what do you think are some tips for people that are new in the field of clinical trial billing? Since you've done this for so long, you've attended conferences, you have connections. If they're new, what are the three or four things you tell them to put on their list of to-dos to make sure that they have the best situation to work in in this field? Well, first of all, I say you need to start just immersing yourself in how Medicare manuals are built because you've got to learn how to read them and understand the directives in those manuals. You have to study, you have to learn in any way you can. So whether that's through your cadet program and coming to conferences, um, that's really key. So learning as much as you can from books and from other professionals who do this job are really important. The second thing I think they need to do is shadow the coding and billing teams in your organization to understand how your coverage analysis and billing grid is being used and translated into claims. A coverage analysis that sits in a drawer after the budget and clinical trial agreement are negotiated is worthless. It needs to be accessed by anyone touching a claim that is related to research. So please, uh, I so the third thing is create a really good communication trail between you and the coding and billing folks, the claims processing experts in patient financial services in your hospital, and make sure that if, if it's, so more and more hospitals have coding teams that do both the hospital and professional side, but a lot of places still keep them separate. So you need to build those bridges to both teams, both the hospital claims and the professional claims. And way back when, when I was doing coronary stent trials, we had private cardiologists that I, as a courtesy, uh, would provide them with education on how to build the claims when they were involved in that investigational device. And that was really just so that I knew that it was a higher likelihood that the hospital and physician claims would look the same, would match, we'd be saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it was a less risk to us overall as well. So I think that those three things, studying, learning, and oh, I guess the fourth thing would be networking. And that is all through um, conferences like the Research Billing Compliance Conference. Again, you provide an opportunity for us to network. I'll do a lot of networking and you encourage it and, um, and facilitate that with 
roundtable talks at lunches with different topics on the tables and such. And I've always enjoyed that. Um, and I really have always appreciated the fact that you invite people who have come alone to come to dinner, come to dinner. You know, I remember it when we were meeting in person, I really liked that you um, had everybody meet in the lobby and we'll split up into groups so that we can all eat together and do more networking that way as well. Well, and, and you're, you're hitting on something that's that's really important. I think it's there are people out there like you that you're the you're the lone wolf McQuaid at your facility. We exactly. see it in all training that we do. There's there's people that do all billing compliance. They're everything at their institution. They're the only person. And I think those are the kind of people that if they come to this event and they connect with other people, it's it's going to benefit them in in more ways than just a work because a lot of us have become really good friends throughout the years. Absolutely. Well, Denise, I truly appreciate you coming on with me and talking about the Research Billing Compliance Summit that's going to be held next month. I hope if um, people are interested in attending, um, they will uh, reach out to me or visit MomentumEvents.com and look for the Research Billing Compliance Summit. Um, And we will hopefully see some of you Um, with Denise and I in Denver in August. And uh, Denise, thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. My pleasure. I can't wait to see everybody else too. And and you as well. Me neither. I can't can't wait. I wish it was tomorrow. (laughs) You've been listening to Kelly to the Core. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Kelly to the Core podcast. Subscribe to the show with your favorite podcast player directly or through our website, kellytothecore.com.